1: Hello, hello. I have with me Father Tim Grumbach, one of your favorite guests here on Trending.
2: Oh, thank you. It's uh, one of my favorite places to be.
1: Well, I was asking people the other day, what has been your favorite episode of Trending? What topic? And everyone goes, Father Tim, Father Tim. And they start posting pictures of Father Tim. We met him recently.
2: Yeah, I've been meeting people who listen to the show all over the place. I go and give talks at different places and they say, we heard you with Timmery. My parishioners, we, we heard you on the radio. They were surprised. Uh, my pastor has even been hearing, like, I hear you're on the radio. I'm <laughs> like, oh, no, what have I said? Hopefully uh, nothing to incriminate. Uh, oh, no, no there, there's only wonderful things happening at the parish, and I hope I haven't made it seem otherwise. So
1: Awesome. Well, Father Tim Grumbach, for those who do not know him, is new is an associate pastor at St. Augustine Parish in the Los Angeles Diocese, also volunteering his time on many projects apart from Trending, including Young Catholic Professionals, Life Teen, you name it. Any new ones going on right now?
2: Well, Culture Project is about to get back into town. I spent some time with them last year, and I'm just really excited that they do such great work all over Los Angeles.
1: Excellent. So please pray for him and his work. He's been a great aid, not only sharing his wisdom, but also the sacraments with us through his priesthood. Today, we're talking about a number of issues, uh, especially having to do with the topic of mental health uh, discernment. We'll be talking a little bit about this transgender issue. You name it, we'll be talking about it later on, including the long-term impact, even after you take birth control, for teenagers who take birth control while they're developing. Stay tuned. You want to hear more on this, a recent study that came out. Father Tim, there's this culture surrounding many people of immobility. We don't move. We don't make decisions. We kind of just wait for stuff to happen. In the meantime, every single voice has some sort of influence because the world's always willing to tell you what to do. Yet there was a tweet that was sent to me about a month ago by Christine Ruzel, who is a correspondent for EWTN and Catholic News Agency. And she kind of gave this warning that she's going to have an unpopular opinion here. And she talks about essentially this quote unquote culture of discernment that permeates within the Catholic young adult circle and how it's basically killing vocation. And she's not talking only about religious vocations, about marital relations, um, relations, not yet, not till you're married, um, marital vocations as well. And I loved her perspective because she's saying, you know, she said things like, well, the seminary and convent don't own your life. They're not the army. And a date lasts at most maybe a few hours. And after that, you know, you move do something is what she's saying essentially here
2: yeah i can say from personal experience that the seminary could probably use a little bit more of that uh, ascetic discipline sort of a an army sort of preparation although it is not signing your life away once one enters into the seminary enters into uh, discernment with the convent it's it's a time of preparation it's a time of discernment but the thing is you can't discern more than one thing at, at a time and so some people will think well you know, can I enter into the seminary or or preparation for the convent, but also be dating someone and that wouldn't be fair to them. It wouldn't be fair to the seminary or the convent and it wouldn't be fair to yourself. And so discernment is a tight rope to walk on in a sense, but you have to be careful thinking that you're going to be signing your life away on the first day. No, it's, it's a time of preparation.
1: Yeah. It's a time of preparation. I think people have this difficult time where once they kind of go in one direction, First of all, they're not willing to take the first step, but then once they head in that direction, they think that that is absolutely where they will be. Yeah, anyone who's gone to college knows that they end up changing their majors and so forth many times and often don't even end up working in the field that they studied. But I think a little secret to living life and kind of going through the rhythm of things is you've got to try stuff out and you have to be willing to recognize, like you may hit a wall and you may think it's a failure, but that's just a sign you're supposed to go in a different direction.
2: That's right. Is we have to learn how to fall. We have to learn how to fail in the Christian life. There's something so radically Christian about that idea of falling and getting back up is that, you know, I I know from my experience of, you know, crashing my bikes, uh, getting almost knocked out by surfboards and all the, all the stuff that my mom hates that I do. I, I've learned that you have to learn how to fall. You know, yeah. if, if you're going to ride your bike, you have to learn how to fall or you're going to break something every time. And you're surfing, you have to learn how to fall or you're going to lose your breath every time you hit the water. And you kind of need that. So in the Christian life as well, and especially in discernment, I've always thought that I'm I'm terrible at discernment because the way I've always done it was just jump in both feet first and let God sort it out.
1: Uh, Okay, and when you said that, we were talking about this on the phone the other day, and I was saying, Father, I'm the same way. Like I jump in, and if I screw up, I screw up, and it's not like, Uh, We're jumping into bad things. We're jumping into good things, maybe taking on too much, maybe not having boundaries. Maybe that might be our problem. But if you are living a sacramental life, as my mom, I remember, always said when I was younger like, if you're staying close to the sacraments, if you're being prayerful, yes, you may not choose the perfect path and do exactly what God wanted you to do, but you'll still be making good decisions and you'll learn from the lessons from having followed maybe lesser paths.
2: And one of the foundations of discernment is not that you're choosing between a good and a bad. Mm -hmm. We should in our conscience be able to choose relatively easily between the good and the bad. Whether or not we choose to act on it, that's where temptation comes in. But uh, discernment at its foundation should be the choice between two goods, sometimes almost equal goods. Sometimes you know lesser and greater, but discernment is about choosing between two goods, and so it's not God setting us up necessarily every time we have to make a decision. Is married life you know evil and the priesthood <laughs> a good thing or or vice versa? Right. rather, it's how can your gifts and your talents, but also your, your deepest needs and your longings reach out to the deepest needs and the longings of the world around you, and how does God want to love you and so let his love overflow? into your vocation.
1: Well, you just hit on two really good points. One, that the option should never be between good versus evil, because we should be formed enough to be able to say, no, this actually isn't even an option. It's off the table. Yeah, that might be easier, but it's not even an option. And unfortunately a lot of people aren't in that place, but we are called to be. And so what is getting in the way of you getting to the point where the bad options are off the table, but then too, you talked about kind of this idea of freedom. I'll never forget a dear friend of mine when he was discerning the priesthood and he finally reached a point where he recognized he could go and start a family and be a father. He was free to do that. He didn't have to be a priest. And it was kind of like this light bulb moment where he recognized I'm free. I can choose. And he ended up becoming a priest. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think another key to, you know, discernment other than just it's between, you know, two goods rather than a good and an evil is that um, the the dangerous word of mediocrity Mm. is falling into this space of constantly discerning where One spends so much time discerning that they never make a decision, right? You know, the decision is a pretty important part of the discernment and to fall into this culture of discernment, which never makes a decision that ultimately leads to a mediocrity.
1: Well, it sounds boring. Yeah. I I mean, I'm sorry. And someone may be listening and say, wow, that's kind of me, but no, it it sounds absolutely boring because we learn from mistakes. We learn from hardship. Maybe you want to, you know, go off and start your own company. Maybe you want to take a job that gives you a little bit smaller of an income, but you really like the job but it's going to be a little challenging. Maybe you want to, you know, come home and take care of your kids and transition to a single income. It's going to be hard, but it's fun when you allow the challenge to enter into your life.
2: And the spiritual tradition of the church, will call this ascidia, mm. you know, and, and sometimes we'll translate that as laziness or sloth, yes. but the monastic tradition of the church really looks at ascidia and says, it's more so a sadness while in the presence of that, which should, should bring us the greatest joy.
1: Wow. I want to come back on that in a second. That's Father Tim Grumbach. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Trending with Timory. and you guys follow us on Instagram. You can find me at Timory, and you can find Father Tim at Father Tim. I think it's an underscore. We tag him. You'll find me. (laughs) You'll find him. I tag him on my page. We're live on Instagram and Facebook. We would love to stay in contact with you throughout the week. Father Tim, you mentioned this acedia and kind of this laziness where people are at, yet they're in the, it's a sorrow in the presence of good. I think this is where a lot of people are at. There's a sorrow because they might have a friend who's in a good place. They might have a friend who has something they want and there's a sorrow that they have over it. But then this jealousy enters in. And I feel like a lot of the time the people end up just being cruel and mean because they're just so unhappy.
2: Yeah, one of the greatest examples we could look at is actually during these masses this week, we're hearing from the book of the prophet, Jonah. Yes. And he's such a a perfect example if you ask me of this acedia because the consequences of this spiritual lethargy, this sadness in the presence of what should make you make us happiest is you have someone like Jonah who first is that he's kind of looking at mediocrity. He's paralyzed because he does not want to go to Nineveh. You know, God calls him to go to Nineveh and we've always thought and sometimes preached, you know, it's because he was afraid to take on such a great calling. No, it's because he hated the Ninevites. He wanted to see God destroy them. Mm. And so he didn't trust God. And so he found himself in this paralysis where he, he could not go and do what God wanted him to do. So what does he do is that he gets bitter. There's this bitterness towards God. And then coming out of this resentment, he turns tail and runs the other direction. <laughs> and so what we have here because of Asidia this spiritual you know sadness he should have been exulting that god wanted to forgive the most evil people in the world mm-hmm. you know these these assyrians who had been destroying nations and destroying israel uh, but instead he has this paralysis and so he he becomes resentful and then he, he there's this agitation in him and he goes seeking everything elsewhere you know distracting right. i mean this happens in our discernment as well as we get bitter that god is asking us something so we find distractions and resentment at the people who are already married or the people who are already priests uh, you know and and this bitterness and this envy builds up in our hearts and that's what happened to jonah and i think that's what is one of the most dangerous things of this constant discernment without making decisions
1: Well, and we have to remember, God is chasing us down. I think that's another part of the story of Jonah. God chases him down. He's trying to run. He's bitter. He's pulling away from the mission God has given him. But God truly does chase us down. And he may be subtle, but that subtleness is not so subtle if you are choosing to try and follow him. So we'll be coming back talking kind of in the similar range of discernment, entering now into a little more deeper issues having to do with suicide. We'll also be talking in just a bit about the long-term impact of birth control and its connection to mental health. We'll be right back.
0: Timmery will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics.
1: Hello, hello, Tim Murray here with Father Tim Grumbach in studio from the Diocese of Los Angeles, working there at St. Augustine Parish as the associate pastor. We want to talk about a little more difficult of an issue, and it's really multifaceted. And I want to start, for those who are just just joining us, by sharing, I know how difficult this issue of suicide is. My own family has faced some of the most tragic circumstances uh, surrounding a suicide as well. And so I hope people understand that when we're bringing the Catholic Church's perspective on this issue, it's not lightly, but it's really trying to seek a path forward, honestly, having to do with our salvation. So for those who don't know, there is a young man, 30 years old, by the name of Jared Wilson, who committed suicide just a couple weeks ago. He was 30 years old, uh, a father and a husband of two little boys. He's the second pastor, in fact, in the last year to commit suicide, who's also a father, another father of a mega church uh, pastor. And I'm looking at this and the story's heartbreaking, but what stood out to me about it is how a lot of people of faith keep saying, you know, I know that he is with Jesus and they keep commending the great parts of who he is, which is great. But they're forgetting the fact that he left a wife and children behind and created a great scandal for the community.
2: Yeah. Some of our Christian brothers and sisters have really lost a very important and deep language of the, the purgation, the the purgatory, the the purification that can still happen after uh, a life is over. And to be without that language, one may jump immediately. And this is, you know, comes from a place of hope. I'm convinced that it comes from, it does come from a place of Christian hope that God does not lose souls, that, that he still loves these people who've taken their own lives more than we possibly could. It comes from that place of hope but not being able to speak of the language of this person still needs our prayers. This person still needs uh, some purification to prepare themselves to meet Jesus and to skip immediately to that language of, well, you know, he, he's done this thing that's, that's hurt us and hurt himself. And it most likely did come up pl- from a place of, you know, maybe clinical depression. And so that took away some of their culpability and we understand that through Catholic moral theology. And yet they're unable to speak of this language of, uh, We don't know where he is and that that brings us sadness and, and grief and being unable to even speak of that grief and that need for purification. It takes away a very important part of the grieving process. And
1: I think that's the most painful element of having a loved one who's committed suicide is we actually don't know where those individuals are. We have no idea yet we're called and we read in the catechism of the Catholic church. If you start, if you ever have any questions about this, there are a couple of fantastic paragraphs, paragraph 2280 through 83. And it talks essentially about how essentially there should be hope that God can offer this person the opportunity to be saved by his means. There may be some opportunity. It doesn't say guarantee. It refers to an opportunity that can occur. And it really points back to the fact that we as a church, we as a people have to pray for this individual and for the people who are scandalized by it. And it also talks about how that's part of the problem is that it also creates scandal for the community. It rejects the love of self and it rejects the love of neighbor. It also rejects the love of God in the act of suicide. And this is an issue we have to talk about. You know, Father Tim, we're seeing this rise in suicide nationwide It is, in particular an epidemic among men. And just this last year is an example of this with two young pastors, 30 years old, who left behind a wife and children it's devastating. And what's interesting is that Jared Wilson's himself actually worked with the people who experienced severe mental health issues and even founded organizations surrounding the mm-hmm. issue.
2: Yeah. And while the issue of suicide is um, so pertinent to this and, and we so need to talk about it. And there are a lot of people who are talking about it more and more, and they're making their own struggles known. And, um, and that's so important, but Know, maybe at the root of this is that idea of mental illness and, and drug addiction and these other things that the catechism does say that uh, it, it may diminish the responsibility of the one yeah. who commits suicide. Um, but it also, you know, the very next sentence reminds us not to despair of their eternal salvation, because as you said, you know, God can take care of them in ways that we could not. And you know, I've just personally and honestly over the last few days have been encountering more and more people um, out on the streets, at, at, you know, nearby my parish, um, you know, I don't have to go far to find homelessness. And I look at that and I say, oh, you know, the issue really isn't at its root. There's not enough homes. It's There's there's so much mental illness out on the streets right now. Right. So much drug addiction. And just over the last few days, you know, I was called to the hospital up to the, you know, the psych ward and, you know, or whatever you want to call it. and And just meeting these people who've been you know, I, I've been trying to put it into the right words and my first thought was like, these people have been broken by the culture, mm-hmm. but that's not right because that's, that's almost making it too easy on us is to say, oh, the culture did it, but people break people. Right. And, and that's where a lot of drug addiction comes in. Mental illness is, is a different story, but it can have its origins in, you know, how, how a child is raised and, uh, their experiences growing up, but. You know, I'm just, I'm seeing broken people on the streets and not even on the streets, they're coming into the church and they're sleeping in our pews. And so often I only meet them because they come near to me, but um, how often am I going near to them? That's been really challenging me these last couple of weeks. And I think that that needs to be said when we're looking at the people who are suffering from these, uh, these, these tendencies towards suicide, the people who are struggling with depression is, are we going out to look for them? Or are we waiting for them to, you know, make some great act, uh, waiting for them to to reach out
1: that's father tim grumbach you're listening to trending with timmery if you or anyone you know is struggling with mental illness or whatever struggle it might be pulling you into depression anxiety and more serious issues from ptsd you name it we do have incredible resources with catholictherapist.com in fact two of those therapists who are part of that network we have here regularly on trending, they come with all the science and knowledge from psychology and sociology and bring in a distinctly Catholic perspective that is so beneficial when healing the mind. And I think that father, Tim, when you were talking a second about uh, ago, you were talking about how sometimes we can blame the culture and I want to challenge all of us. You know, we have all been surprised by the people in our lives who have committed suicide or by the people who are struggling with severe depression. I think part of the struggle is that we live in a culture where we are literally frying our brains. And this is where I think it really connects to current culture and issues, whether it's the young woman who's been pressured or has caved into engaging in sexual intimacy and it has weighed severely upon her mind, whether it's a person who has abused drugs and fried their brain in such a way, or alcohol, who, who has consumed porn and has rewired their brain, who has experienced some form of sexual emotional or verbal abuse, manipulation, all of these issues are also a sign of the breakdown of the family. And so when we're bringing these various issues up, it's important that there's a lot of healing that has to take place in the culture. And that's why the resource of Catholic Therapist, Catholictherapist.com, I think is a great aid in helping to heal the culture because it goes beyond prayer. We need prayer, but we also need intervention of human people who are trained to help us.
2: Yeah, that was one of the messages of Jared, uh, I think it was almost like the evening that he actually took his life was out on social media, he was saying that you know, just praying to Jesus won't cure your mental illness, just praying to Jesus won't you know, cure this, you know, these suicidal tendencies, yet we recognize that you know, just psychology won't heal it either is that we are you know a person in the deepest sense of the meaning of the word is that we are body and soul and our our mind is connected to both of those uh, with a proper christian anthropology and understanding of the human person with the christian world view so to have catholic therapists who can help out and to understand that they're they're treating a whole person and that's really really key uh, to those who are struggling with these thoughts of suicide to people who are struggling with mental illness so please Uh, don't be afraid to do more than pray you know prayer is key prayer is important but you know just like the the paralytic who was brought before jesus he could not get to jesus on his own he needed his friends to carry him and so you know there's a story told about a, a priest who was preaching at a funeral of a young man. I don't remember if it was, he took his own life or he died in some great tragedy, but you know, he wasn't, you know, a perfect young man. He was, you know, he, he had his, his troubles, but he was, he was a good young man, but you know, his friends gathered together at the funeral and were joking and laughing and having a great time and, and remembering all the, the great and funny things that this young man had done in his life. And the priest very seriously said, we don't know if this young man is in heaven or hell, but you must be the friends of this paralytic, you must carry him. So pray fast sacrifice for the good of his soul, because his story is not done yet. And it was just a a really powerful reminder that, you know, we need one another, we belong to one another. And as Mother Teresa would often say is that, you know, the reason there's no peace is because we've forgotten that we belong to one another.
1: Another perspective on this story that I'd like to throw in here, Father, you sent this to me. It's from the Journal of American Medical Association. It's a journal showing how we found there's actually a group of people who have been resilient to suicide, zero suicides among this test group, and it actively catholic women who are attending mass more than once a week their suicide rate is zero and for those women who are going to mass once a week more devoutly um, we see that in fact protestant women have a seven times more higher suicide rate than actively catholic women so what they're showing is that not only does faith matter but specifically the catholic faith matters
2: yeah, which points to the reality that you know, again, you, you can't just pray this, you know, pray pray mental illness away. You know, Jesus can work certain miracles, yes, but um, and simply walking into a church every Sunday isn't going to do it. What they realized in this study seems to be that, you know, these women it wasn't just about going to mass on Sundays, it was about being transformed week in and week out by the grace of the Eucharist in order to live a, a, a life that desires to be self-giving, desires to pour oneself out. So it's hard to say just from this research, just from this study that you'll know, go to mass and you'll be perfectly okay. But we believe that the grace of the Eucharist does help us carry certain crosses that we wouldn't be able to otherwise.
1: And it challenges you grow in your faith because we can go through the motions of mass and it means nothing. I mean, it, that's easy to zone out, be present, but how can you go deeper to invest for greater mental health for yourself and the influence you have on others?
0: You can listen to more of trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory.
1: A shout out to our new sponsor here on Trending, Solidarity Health Share. For those who aren't aware, Solidarity HealthShare is supporting here, Trending with Timri. And for those who don't know, Solidarity Health Share is very simple. They help members pay for affordable and quality healthcare. They're working within the community showing that there are eligible medical expenses, everything from medical treatment surrounding your regular he- healthcare costs, NAPRO technology, natural family planning, you even have the option of choosing your health care providers. And at Solidarity Health Share, they're dedicated to faith and are committed to care. For more information, you can visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. Again, that's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Father Tim, we've been talking about this theme of mental health and, and typical trending style here. We often take up difficult moral issues. And today, hormonal contraception we know has had a major influence on the culture from the perspective of taking sex outside of marriage and therefore allowing for the baby to be destroyed through abortion because now babies are considered an accident. Uh, Safe sex is considered protected protected sex, which is completely wrong. And so I want to talk about this new study that came out from actually the University of British Columbia. And it was published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. And it was showing that essentially for women who, should I say teenagers, who have taken birth control during their adolescence as they're still developing, that this hormonal, should I say sex hormone replacement, really kind of manipulation, has essentially led to increased long-term impact of depression and actually altering the brain even years after the contraception is taken.
2: Yeah, and manipulation, excuse me, is such a key word there because it's not healing something that's wrong with the body most of the time, you know, there will be some uh, doctors who will uh, give birth control to, you know, uh, normalize some uh, functions, but for the most part, it's manipulation of something that should be working healthily. And that's not good for the body when you've taken something that is working healthy and shutting it down.
1: You know, when we're looking at this whole issue surrounding depression, you know, we talk about how a contraceptive lifestyle can be a depressing lifestyle. And we'll come to that in a bit. But staying on the focus here, they're showing that women who have taken birth control as a teenager, as an adolescent, still developing, are 1.7 to 3 times more likely to be depressed than women who are adults who take birth control, which already have a higher likelihood of depression.
2: And we're seeing more and more research done young people at this age range and and the development of their brains and how a a woman's brain will develop, you know, more, more quickly than a young man's will. But we see not just in this matter of artificial contraception, but even, you know, the gender transition, you know, for young people is that their their bodies are not formed and their brains are not yet fully formed or functioning. Mm -hmm. And so to uh, introduce something so foreign to the body, the body will be fighting back and that puts tremendous strain not just on the, the physical part of the body but the mental part of the young person.
1: Well, that's a really interesting point. So in the study it talks about in the end essentially the people who published it about how they're still for contraception and women's choice and yada, yada, yada a typical very pro-abortion Ma- major stance. Major global
2: health priority.
1: Major right? global yeah. health priority. This is what you know, contraceptive and reproductive rights are but then it does say So although they're still supporting birth control use, they're saying we do hope that people will be more informed in dialogue and decision making. Mm. I just think what a lie. These are the types of studies that end up being hidden. Because people are so pro this agenda for hormonal contraception, quote unquote reproductive health, that no one's telling that 13-year-old girl that she is damaging her brain for life.
2: Even the language that's used here, talking about the use of oral contraception, contraceptives, is that it's particularly popular among teenagers. Mm-hmm. It, it, what, like, like the latest music, like, uh, you know, like Netflix. It's, it's particularly popular among teenagers, but just the, the use of that language is, uh, it's, it's very weaponized, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. I mean, and this is what I think is encouraging the mindset. Well, why wouldn't you be taking a birth control? Even if you're not sexually active, we should put you on the pill. This is what your peers say. This is what your doctors say. This is what parents are sane. Mm-hmm. And so this is the realm of confusion that teenagers feel like, oh, this is something everyone's doing. I should be doing it too. And in fact, we can have doctors, at least in the state of California, putting teenagers on birth control at about 12, 13 years old. And the parent doesn't even have to be involved in that conversation. And yet, Father Tim, it's going against a very grain of research we see. We've seen that in animal studies, countless animal studies, when there has been sex hormone replacement that has had an influence on the behavior and is irreversible after the fact, even Mm -hmm. if it's no longer being taken. Yeah.
2: Well, we are most certainly seeing the the fulfillment of certain prophecies. One could say of the, the church's teaching against artificial contraception. And while we're. You know, the church's teaching was focused at the time so much on married couples and their use of contraception within marriage. Now we have to speak of it in the language of teenagers, of adolescence, and the effects it's having on them. I know before that we have talked about that that great encyclical Casti Canubi. That was uh, yes. Pius the Eleventh, I believe. Yes. yes, 1930. It was right around the time that the uh, the Anglican Communion right. uh, and the Lambeth Conference of 1930. Uh, gave permission for i forget exactly the language it was ambiguous enough couples, as it was in certain situations yes. or something like that for married
1: couples to suddenly right. start using birth control right, right.
2: and uh, and pope pius XI, his language was so very strong in that you know pointing back to a, an earlier encyclical i believe it was leo the leo the 13th and how you know for so long ever since the the, ad, the advent of this artificial contraception, the Church has recognized the danger it can have on relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, But now we're looking at not just the relationships, but the danger it's having on the human person, body and soul. And looking at adolescents, I don't know if when they were writing these encyclicals, they'd imagine that they would, you know, the Church would one day have to speak out against the use of it for non-married adolescents.
1: It's incredible. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. Shout out again to our sponsors at Solidarity. You can learn more about alternative options to health care at solidarityhealthshare.org. Father Tim, I want to share a little story here. When I was working in the crisis pregnancy centers, I did not counsel often. I did a lot of the education, other things behind the scene. But one time we had a young girl who had gone through a crisis pregnancy a number of years ago, and she was now, you know, continuing to do follow up with the center, because let me tell you, crisis pregnancy centers are in it for the long haul. They maintain relationships for the, with those girls for a very long time. And this young woman was getting ready to marry the father of her child that had been saved from abortion. And one day I go into the counseling room with her and I think, okay, well, it's time to talk to her about birth control. It was kind of my task for the day. And I didn't know if she had any religious background. I personally didn't know a ton about her. And so I kind of went starting a conversation, trying to kind of find out what worldview does she come from? And eventually I end up discovering she's Catholic. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything all the time but I ended up asking her if she knew anyone who had taken hormonal contraceptives because I know that that's something that she might be considering now that she's getting married and she ends up just spilling I don't even have to say anything about her own family member and how they weren't taking hormonal contraceptives but once her sister did end up taking it the relationship between her sister and brother-in-law changed and how from then on out he really started to degrade her and her, his treatment of her was so belittling and I said, well, why do you think that is? And I remember we ended up coming to the conclusion predominantly with her own words and me just asking questions that essentially he began to use her Mm -hmm. to view her as an object. And without even outright saying, this is what the church teaches. I waited till later to find out she was Catholic and really cared about her faith. I said, you know, we're called to be open to life. It's a natural part of how we engage in sexual intimacy. It's a part of what happens. And when you use contraceptives, you know, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's blood clotting, but then there's also this relational interpersonal dynamic that breaks the couple. And I said, sexual intimacy is supposed to be completely unitive. And that means that there should be no barrier. And I said, could you see how when we put a barrier whether it be a condom or this intellectual barrier of contraception trying to prevent something that there's a wall that goes up between the two people she got it and i said well actually you mentioned you're catholic and i then shared the information and she got it from a social perspective an interpersonal and a religious perspective these are the conversations we're called to have with people yeah
2: you're speaking about the contraceptive mentality that's the term that the church has been using for some time And it doesn't refer only to the relationship between married couples. I can tell you that I've been challenged before to look at my own priesthood and the ways that I might view it in a contraceptive mentality of when, when I choose to be fruitful as opposed to when God chooses to be fruitful. And that's a, a frightening thought that it can creep into any relationship that we have. Is that we hold ourselves back from being a gift to the other, and so bringing new life mm-hmm. into the world. And so that's why the church has always been you know, adamant that in in the married life that there there is just no place for this men, this contraceptive mentality, because it you know that was part of the prophetic language of Humane Vitae from Paul VI yeah. is that. You know, the, the the man could so very much begin to use the woman, is, and it would also lead the uh, the couple to see the child as a as merely a consequence of their pleasure with one another, a and,
1: consequence that be can be wasted away.
2: Right, right, and and when a child becomes nothing more than just a consequence that could be wasted away, that could be thrown away, that could be ended before it's even brought into this world, then that is going to greatly damage the, the chastity um, among the couple, because you know, what we will be talking about this later, this idea of chastity, it's not just about this great no to sex. It's about this greater yes to the love, which is expressed through the sexuality. And you know, the catechism uses such beautiful language that it's, it's the this, this school of self gift. It's where we learn how to become more like Christ.
1: And this is where we battle of finding that we're not giving in to pride and into pleasure that is predominant among that contraceptive ideology. And people think that, well, we need to talk about abortion. But let me tell you, people who are pro-life are allowing a pro-abortion mindset to set in as they are permissive in their own lives and the lives of others for contraception.
0: Timmery will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timmery, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics.
1: So just a couple of months ago I was in Alabama, I headed over to a coffee shop and as I was meeting with a friend of mine there, he looked at the barista as he was checking out and said, Thank you, ma'am. And when he said thank you, ma'am, she looked at him and very I should I say disrespectful toward a customer, ends up saying, Well, why would you call me ma'am? And he is absolutely flabbergasted by the whole thing and says, well, you're a woman and I'm being respectful of you. And, you know, it's a term of some honor, you know, and I call pretty much all women, ma'am, to show respect for them. So something along those lines. Well, I'm not a woman. And just very rude in the dialogue. And from there on out, the rest of the transaction is actually quite disrespectful in how it occurs. And I was just sitting there, you know, surprised. Okay, bring the Californian to Alabama and boom, this is what happens. Uh, But it was interesting because the gentleman I was with was completely shocked. He had never experienced anything like that before. I was shocked by the rudeness of the dialogue, not so much by the content of it coming from California and the insanity of this transaction. Transgender issue. But this isn't the only first, this isn't the first time we're seeing conversations like this actually getting even worse.
2: Yeah. We've got to be careful with our language now, don't we? (laughs) We were just chatting on the phone yesterday. Was it? And uh, I I said the word gal when I was (laughs) talking about a a lady who's helping us at the parish and that, you know, know, my mom grew up in Michigan and, you know, some of her, you know, Midwestern language got passed on to me. I was saying we used to call soda pop when I was growing (laughs) up. And, and uh, so, you know, some people might say gal and mean something, you know, I don't know derogatory by it, but but that's that's something that you know when I'm speaking respectfully of of a woman, sometimes I'll say that word. And our attempts to be respectful to people is being thrown back in our faces at times now, isn't it?
1: Well, and look at how disrespectful they are. They can't respectfully interact with a customer. And this is what's interesting to me, Father Tim. If I disagree with someone, unless they are threatening me and in my face, I'm going to try to be polite to them. In Mm -hmm. fact, I should even try to, uh, if I have the opportunity, maybe even build some sort of relationship with them. I remember debating, a feminist professor, a very pro-abortion feminist professor at Cal State San Marcos. And, you know, people who disagreed with her would want to villainize her. I sat there before and after talking to her for a while, because the reality is, is that we may disagree on an issue, but we should be able to have relationships with people we disagree with because that's how we build bridges and change things.
2: Right. And it's a matter of obedience to the commands of Christ. When someone strikes you on one cheek, you know, give them the other and you know, i'm I'm thinking right now just because of that the difference between tolerance and love and also the following the commandments of christ you know I'm, I'm thinking about this story i just read about the desert fathers where this great and holy hermit had kind of come into town for some reason or another and there was a, a young woman there who was possessed by a demon and came up and slapped him on <laughs> on his cheek and so what did he do he didn't you know yell at the demon yell at the girl he turned his other cheek and the demon says, "Oh, he's following the commands of Christ. I've been vanquished," and so <laughs> you know, to follow the commands of Christ is something that can you know vanquish the the demonic in our society still. Um, but you know, we will try to use the weapons of this world to fight back and to argue back at times. And you know, there's a place for debate and a place for clarification. But what if we you know took a little bit more seriously some of the commands of Christ, like you know, should you call your brother a fool, you'll be liable to the sanhedrin should you call him rakai you will be liable to fiery gehenna is how are we correcting those in error how are we responding to those who will either literally or figuratively slap us on the cheek do we do it by following the commands of christ and so in obedience to the command of christ you know casting out certain demons of our culture
1: Let's talk about the topic of tolerance. There's another example, not just my own. And you know what's interesting before I mention it is I remember in that situation after uh, the gentleman I was with explained why he called her ma'am, we just remained silent. Mm. We finished the transaction. <laughs> not like, you know, anything we ordered at that point. Everything we ordered was complicated and that's a moment okay just remain silent let them let them have their day and I think that sometimes that's the most respectful thing to do but here's an interesting example I was reading a story online I think this happened in fact a couple weeks ago there was a story of a young woman who had gone into a coffee shop I believe in Nebraska and she worked for Nebraska Family Alliance it was a Maryland sneak actually as I'm looking at the name and she would go there every Monday I believe would go to this cute little shop It would be how she'd start her week. And one day the barista came up to her and ended up yelling at her, saying the F word multiple times, saying, I recognize who you are and how dare you. And apparently this person identifies as transgender and just tore into the customer telling her to leave, that she's not welcome there, that they don't want to serve her And it ended up making the news. And of course, the news ended up spinning it to somehow make it sound as if uh, (laughs) the person who was being yelled at and cussed at was the wrong person. But yet again, it shows this idea of tolerance is not present among people who disagree with us. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. What do we mean by tolerance, though? We were just talking about this is there's a big difference between tolerance and love. Yeah. And you know, it's been a big part of my preaching and my own experience in ministry is that I, I've not been called to be tolerant to people. I've been called to love people. And there's this great revolution happening in the culture, this revolution of tolerance. And yet what's missing is a, a revolution of love, love in truth. Right. They will use the word love, but I don't think they mean the same thing that we mean i don't know if you know well, i don't think you know what i don't know what it is
1: well i mean if you look at it tolerance is and you said this to me yesterday we're not called to be tolerant we're called to be truthful with love mm-hmm. and that requires actually correcting people that okay. requires telling people the truth not just saying hey well, you do you that's totally fine no it's saying actually there's a reason why I am calling you a woman because you look like a woman, you're interacting like a woman. I'm doing the best of my ability to be polite to you. In fact, I'm trying to be polite to you, you know, whatever that might be. And sometimes our tolerance or should I say, our loving truth is being silent at times so that we don't kind of create a big fight in the wrong mm-hmm. situation.
2: Right? Because tolerance by its very nature keeps people at an arm's length. Mm-hmm. You know, tolerance is something we do. We do to them. It creates this barrier between us and the other people and that we're not inviting them to come to be with us. We're saying, you can stay over there. You can stay the way you are. You don't need to change. We will tolerate you. Do you want to love your brother and sister or do you merely want to tolerate them? Toleration is something we do to someone we can't stand.
1: <laughs> but hold but, on a yeah. second. Yeah. By the way, that's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to training with Tim Ray. Think about tolerance. Sometimes we have to remember that a lot of the things we're discussing and behaviors we're supposed to show to our neighbors start at home. Mm-hmm. And to be honest... When I think of tolerance, if I'm tolerating myself, I'm tolerating some bad behavior. I probably shouldn't be tolerating. And you said it yesterday, perfect on the phone. Like we're called to conversion. We are called to change. That is what the gospel message of Jesus Christ is about. We're called to repent and believe in the gospel. And how is tolerance repenting? And how is tolerance believing and changing in something other than ourselves? Mm
2: -hmm. And letting it be that, you know, there's no us and them
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, what Jesus did on the cross. He did so that there's only us and when we approach these situations or they approach us as it sounds like it did in this Alabama coffee shop was the situation approached her and was it a, a matter of her saying, you oh, there's me and then there's you over there. I'll keep you on an arm's length. Or was it this other person coming to her and say, projecting this onto her and saying, no, no, you're you're not even welcome here. I'm not even going to keep you at an arm's length. I'm just going to kick you out. And um, another thing that we were questioning as we were talking about this yesterday, about this story, was that this, uh, this barista is a biological male who identifies as transgender. Right. I don't know if the research has been done. But it seems to me that there's still something innately built into a, a man, even though he may identify as transgender. I've been wondering about this. Is there a, a certain kind of a stronger tendency towards, uh, going on the offensive mm. of, of being protective, uh, in those biological males who, uh, identify as transgender, is there going to be more aggressiveness still built into their character? You know, so would this have been as verbally violent, if it were a biological female identifying as transgender. You know, I I think it's an important question to ask, and I don't know if people have been asking that question, is that we believe that, you know, one's maleness and one's femaleness has an effect on your person in the deepest sense. So if one is denying that, you know, that inherent maleness or femaleness, masculinity or the femininity, is it still gonna be fighting its way to express itself, even yes. though they are trying to express themselves differently.
1: And aggression is a not natural part of who a, ma- who a man is. And we could go into a whole conversation yeah. about what aggression is, whether it's good or bad, but part of what it reminds me of is when Patrick Reed was on the show with us a couple months ago, and we were talking about maleness and femaleness, he was talking about specifically with men, part of the great mesh, mesh, mission, sorry, and the fire that's within the man is to destroy what is evil in the world and build up what is good. Mm-hmm. And perhaps some of these men who are following false ideologies, for example, maybe they're living a transgender lifestyle, they're trying to destroy what they perceive as an evil and build up what they perceive as a good. And so they're still doing what is naturally ingrained on the masculine heart.
2: Yeah, and it can be said that um, when men interact, or interact with one another, they'll try to outdo one another. Mm-hmm. But it can also be said that sometimes when women interact in negative ways with one another, it, it won't be so much about excelling above the other woman, it would be about bringing that woman who's excelling down to their level. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's hard for me to say as a man, but but that's my understanding. That And I, I wonder if that's finding its way into this situation even, where it's still built into a man, a biological man, to destroy what they see as evil. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of aggression comes out. And there's still an inherent maleness that is expressing itself.
1: Thank you for spending time with us. You can find Father Tim Grumbach at Father Tim Grumbach. All of his episodes are at radiotrending.com, along with all links to his social media platforms from Instagram to Twitter. I hope you follow me as well at Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E.
0: This has been Trending with Timmery. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. That's Radio Trending. Com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes.